At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one, with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non toxic, non flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. All right, it's just you and I on this podcast, no guests, flying solo. And one of the reasons I'm doing that is because I wanted to talk about a couple of things. One, one is actually a request from at j13 iglesias from instagram he messaged me and asked me to speak about kind of my experience going through writing my journeyman exam now i know it's different all over the world it's not the same and i'm not really going to speak on the differences of the exams and whatnot i'm going to speak about my experience writing the exam a mistake that i made during the exam that could have cost me um failing that exam the first time over could have cost me that Um, I'm going to talk about that I'm going to talk about a health issue I had leading up to um, the exam and studying for it and the amount of stress I was under because of it I'm going to talk about that stuff okay I'm also going to talk about my troubleshooting approach from the minute I get the call from the dispatcher to the minute I get to the call and how I go through the motions of troubleshooting and finding out what's wrong with the machine that I'm working on. Now I've ran into techs um, through the years that basically they they kind of guess or they make up scenarios in their head before they even get there. That's not good. Okay, you can think about what might be wrong, but don't say yeah it's this because it's going to lead you down the wrong path. I'm going to talk about all of that during this episode flying solo guys the hvac know-it-all podcast i'm your host gary mccready all right today's true tech tools minute guys gonna talk quickly about the vito pro pack bags they got a pretty big lineup of them but more specifically the camo packs are kind of what catches my eyeball i don't have one i have a couple of vito pro packs and i love them super strong durable the longevity is incredible uh the quality is incredible the price point is high but i think you get what you pay for when you purchase a vito pro pack bag now the bad news is none of them are on sale at true tech tools right now but you can save with promo code know it all eight percent at checkout okay and as always i'll drop the preferred testo pricing link in the podcast notes So I wanted to throw a couple of tips your way. The first one is done with a Testo Smart Probe temp clamp. Now they have thermistors installed on them. You can actually slide those thermistors out of the little slot that it sits in. Okay, so it's kind of dangling outside the temp clamp. So now you can take that clamp and you can clamp it to um, grills, diffusers, you name it. Have that thermistor dangling in the airstream and now you can check air temp. Pretty neat idea. Um, That little tip could come in handy in different situations. Clamping it to like a ceiling mounted diffuser, get off the ladder, open up the Smart Probes app, um, 
And now you can monitor discharge air temp at that diffuser with a clamp to it. And you know, it's not going anywhere. Nice, sturdy clamp. And that thermistor is now dangling in the airstream. Just a little tip I wanted to throw your way. The next tip comes from Yellow Jacket straight out of their Super Evac vacuum pump manuals. So the gas ballast on the pump, if you open that gas ballast up, okay, and wait till you're down to about 1,500 to 2,000 microns, you'll actually preserve your vacuum oil. Okay, once you get down to about 2,000 to 1,500, somewhere in that range, you shut that gas ballast off. Now, when you shut it off, the oil comes back into play and starts grabbing those contaminants to pull you down to 500 or below. So there's another tip um, straight out of the YJ uh, manual for the super evac vacuum pumps. That's where I read it, and that's where I learned it. Um, something came up on HVAC Know It All Facebook open page the other day, and it was regarding Nylog red and blue. Now, there is a bit of a difference, if you guys didn't know. Nylog red is for mineral oil systems. Nylog blue is for POE oil systems. The blue you can use for anything. The mineral oil stuff, the red, only use it on mineral oil systems, okay? That's, that's the distinct difference between the two. So if you grab the blue, you're good, all right? But if you have the red and you're using it on, like, R22, um, you're also good. But just... Beware, there is a distinction between the two, all right? Going forward, red, mineral oil, blue, POE, but you can use blue for everything. Now, guys, um, I saw on LinkedIn that my buddy Ken from Cool Air Products posted up a picture. Okay, and that picture was of a, it looked like to me, a, uh, a distribution line off a TX valve going into a, a, an evaporator, right? And there was some smart seal around it. Another successful leak repair with smart seal external. Okay, this is the, the external putty stuff. Now, I know you guys are going to say just braise it up. Yes, that's cool. Brazing it up, replacing that piece of pipe. That's all good. Um, there's sometimes, I'm going to give you an example of where the smart seal external is a great truck stock product. So, I don't know if you guys have ever been into a building that requires a fire watch during brazing and after brazing. I've been in buildings that require um, a four-hour fire watch after the torch goes out. Now, let's say it's two in the morning. All right, you had two um, cap lines rubbing together, for instance, due to vibration. You get there, it's out of gas. You see the leak right there because there's oil all over the place. Okay, but there's a... Um, there's a fire watch. Let's say you can't you can't implement the fire watch because security, there's only one or two guys and they're doing their rounds, blah, 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 blah. So you can wrap the smart seal external around it, heat it up, okay, get it cured within an hour while you're vacuuming down the system, and then charge it up and get the, the customer going. Because this happens. In residential, maybe not so much, but if you do any type of commercial stuff, this can happen to you. Process, critical equipment, anything like that, this can happen to you. Okay, then you can go back and then you can cut out that section of pipe that was leaking and replace it later. This is why it's a good truck stock item for situations like this. Okay, and as always, guys, Field Pulse has their app. Simply send free estimating and invoicing app, always free. You want to upgrade to Field Pulse anytime you want, 14-day free trial. 
go to fieldpulse.com forward slash HVAC know it all. All right. I remember failing one exam in my entire life. And um, it's actually a funny story. I was going to Humber College and a lot of you that are listening may have went to Humber College. You were taught by guys like Nick Reggie and Jamie Kitchen and Bernie Jackson. Um, if you guys went to Humber. Now, when I was there, the level of gas licensing, it was G3, G2, and then later on you go get your G1. G3 basically allows you to kind of work with gas uh, around a licensed technician that's that's going to look and oversee the project, okay? Um, G2, you can work up to 400,000 BTUs by yourself. Okay, anything above that, no, you got to be a G1. So during my time at Humber, getting the basic um, refrigeration, electrical, we did the G3 and the G2 class. And it was based on modules at the time. I don't know how it's done nowadays. This is, this is many years ago. This is going back to like uh, 99, 2000. So it was based on modules. And every module we'd cover, we'd do a test after. And you had to get 75% on the test. So there was a bar down in the, uh, in the college called Caps. And we got, lot, we got close with a lot of cl- classmates. Okay, and, and we would we would uh, go out for lunches and we'd go out at night and have a few drinks and stuff. This afternoon, we decided to go to Caps and um, stupid me had one too many and wrote the exam a little inebriated, inebri- inebriated, I should say. <laughs> anyway, so I'm writing the exam and my lips are numb and I'm like, this is not good. So we got the we got the marks back. Uh, a few days later, and yep, I failed. I think I got like a 68 or a 69, something like that. Not bad, I guess, for a drunk guy. So don't ever take an exam under the influence. Stupid, stupid idea. Okay, so that was my bad. That was my mistake. So that was the only exam I really ever failed. And all through school, I mean, I was I was kind of like an A-B student through high school. I did graduate with honors, and, and I'm not saying this to, to, to brag. It's kind of just telling the story of going to write my exam, which is called a C of Q, by the way, Certificate of Qualification for my journeyman license, Red Seal, it's called, um, here in Canada, all right? So I work for a company where the technicians had a lot of the, the, the senior techs, there's a lot of egos there. Okay. And being an apprentice in this company was, was difficult at times for me, um, going through and, and I've talked about it before. I never had really used tools until I got into the trade and I had to go through all this learning curve of learning tools and learning, uh, electrical and gas and refrigeration. And it was, it was a difficult time, but what, what it, it finally clicked for me. Finally it took a while, but it did. So I didn't actually go to my first block of schooling for three years because the way it's done here is that, and guys that live in and around Ontario, or listen, you'll know that we do a five-year apprenticeship, right? Um, and you go to three blocks of schooling. 
two months of basic, two months of intermediate, two months of advanced. Now, I didn't actually go to my uh, basic schooling for three years in to my apprenticeship. All right, so it's a, it's a five-year apprenticeship. You should have your hours done in five years. But I actually didn't go right the C of Q um, for about seven years in because my schooling was delayed for three years. And I don't remember if it's because we didn't have the manpower for me to go or I don't exactly remember why it was delayed that long. But I know when I did go to basic three years in the trade, I was head and shoulders above some other techs that were there or apprentices that were there. Cause some of those guys just got into the trade literally like two months ago and they were at basic, basic training. I've been in the trade for three years. So it, there was a difference there. You could, you could see it right away. So after advanced, uh, I knew I had to write the CFQ very, very soon. So all my notes were collected and I'd go through them every night, read, and memorize and read and memorize and read and memorize. It was it was a, a very um, stressful process process. And that same year I wrote, I was also getting married. I was uh, 28 years old, and I was getting married that year. I'm pretty sure that in and around that time, I was also thinking about going for my G1. My G1, as I mentioned before, would have been the gas license above the G2, which would allow me to work on pretty much anything under the sun. And I was trying to make sure I had all the paperwork in line and um, all the hours that I needed and, and all that. So I believe I was going through that as well. So getting married and studying for the CFQ. And I didn't want to fail. And the reason that I said um, I'd only failed that one exam and I was drunk <laughs> And, and I had A's and B's. I was, I, I was trying to hold myself up to the standard. So I was really stressing myself out. And I knew this was the career path I was going to take. And I didn't want to go back to my shop with all those egotistical uh, senior techs and tell them I failed. I did not want to do that. That was, that was probably the number one stress I had. The number two stress I had was um, the stress I was putting on myself and holding myself up to a high standard. And and then the, the stresses of, of everyday life and getting married and stuff. So one day I'm driving to work and all of a sudden, and this is wintertime, and I'm on one of the busiest highways in southern Ontario or in Canada or maybe even in the world. It's the 401, very, very busy highway. And all of a sudden, um, I couldn't breathe. My palms began to sweat. My mouth was dry. It was very scary. I thought I was having a heart attack. I really, really did. So I had to roll down the windows, dead of winter, both of them, in, in the truck while I'm driving. Um, and luckily, we were kind of rolling because the traffic was really busy. And when I got to the site, I sat there for easily two hours and just breathed in and out, in and out, in and out. And it ended up being a panic attack. Very scary if you've had one. Um, the symptoms are very, very similar to a heart attack. And all of these stresses combined built up is what caused this to happen, I believe. I don't know this for sure because I'm not a doctor, but I believe this is what had caused this to happen. 
So very stressful, um, very scary. And I went into the exam studying my ass off for days and nights, days and nights. And something I did that was smart was actually two, two days before the exam, I just stopped studying. I let my brain rest, just let it settle. And I tried to think of other things and do other things because studying for an extra two days, I didn't think was really going to help me because I had gone through all the material that I had several times. Okay. There was nothing else to cover as far as I knew. So when I went into the exam, I did feel fresh and that break I gave myself helped. That's, that's me though. I don't know if that's going to be for everybody. So sit down at the exam and I start going through the exam and I, and I believe I had about three hours to do 150 questions. I believe that's what it was. And I think now there's more time actually added to um, the time it takes for you to do the, these exams. But I sat down and the way the exams are written, and I don't know if they're written like this where you guys are, but basically it's multiple choice. You have four answers that you can choose from, and they try to trick you because two of the answers might be totally wrong. One of them, one of them is usually complete bullshit, so you can scratch that off right away. One of them's like, eh, is it that? And the other one's, yeah, it's that. And then the other one is, yeah, it's definitely that if you know what you're doing, if you know what the answer is, because they try to trick you by giving you answers that are the same or the right ones that are very similar to each other, but you have to choose the most correct answer. If you understand what I mean. So, I mean, two of them could be very similar answers, but the one answer that's the right one on the test will have that added piece of information, right? Um, it's the most correct answer. So what I did was I started going through the test and the ones I knew right away, I would, um, I would answer them and I would kind of leave the, the harder ones and come back to them. But what I started doing and what I shouldn't have done is I started to second guess myself on everything. And that was a huge mistake. And I'll tell you why it was a huge mistake, because I'm going to tell you how another exam I wrote turned out beautifully because I didn't do that. So I started to second guess myself. And I started to sweat and I started to panic and I would look at the clock and then look at the test, look at the clock, look at the test. And before I knew it, the three hours was almost up. I had about 10 minutes left and I still had about 15 to 18 questions left on the exam I hadn't answered yet. And these were the harder ones. And I'm like, what am I going to do here? So I tried my best for about five minutes to answer as much as I could. And then the rest of them, I had to guess. Straight up guess, because I had no time. I wasn't going to leave them blank. I'd rather guess and hope I got it right. Right? And then leave it blank. So I left that test being very, very unsure if I even passed. Very, very unsure. And I had to get 75% on that test to pass. Um... And they said, yeah, it's going to take a while before you get your answers. We're going to, uh, we'll send them to you in the mail. And I'm like, man, I can't wait that long. So I think it was the next week I was driving by the, uh, the office where we did the test. I pulled in and I went up and I'm like, please, if you have my results, please just show them to me, please. Right. 
So she's like, well, we're not really supposed to do that. And while she's talking, she kind of was flipping through the books and pointed at my name. She had a ruler and she put it um, across my name and what my mark was. And lo and behold, I passed. I smidged through. I believe I got like a 76, 76 or 78, one of those two numbers. But I didn't care because it didn't matter at that point. Um, it didn't matter if I got 99 or if I got 76. Both numbers are a pass. That's all I needed. Because I was so, like I said, such in fear of going back to the shop and telling everybody I had failed the test and I'd have to rewrite. Um, so second guessing myself during that test. Well, I shouldn't have done that. And I'll tell you why. Because when I was writing my, my G1 test, very, very shortly after, not very long after, I did not second guess myself. I went in and like, that's the answer. That's the answer. That's the answer. And I was probably out of, uh, 50, 60 people, the first or second one to be finished. And it, I, I ended up getting in the mid nineties on that test because I did not, I went through the same study process, um, day and night studying, looking through my books, making notes, um, giving myself little quizzes and I was prepared and I gave myself that break because I knew it worked two nights before the test. And I went in not second guessing myself. I was done very quickly and I got in the, the mid nineties instead of the mid seventies. So for me, that worked that, that way I studied and that way I gave myself a break and that way of not second guessing myself and using my gut because I'd prepared myself mentally for the test, um, really, really helped me. So if you're studying for a test, I don't know how you study. I don't know if you need the break the night before, if you have to go over your notes. And one thing that just don't be hard on yourself when it comes to sitting down in front. Most of the times your gut is going to tell you what the right answer is. When you start to second guess yourself, that's where you're going to have problems. I lived that through experience, 100%. All right, so troubleshooting, guys. It's a, um, it's, it's a skill that needs to be kind of honed. You have to practice it over and over again to get it right. And there's certain things that you need to do when you're starting out in the trade to get good at troubleshooting, like looking at diagrams and studying them until your mind hurts, taking your meter and putting it on different things, uh, different terminals to ground across, uh, power off, power on. You, you need to do these things to learn. Um, sticking your gauges on stuff. If the unit has a liquid line, discharge line, suction line, putting putting a, a gauge on each one and see what each one is reading compared to the other. Taking temps all over the place, discharge line, liquid line, suction line, um, taking return air temps and temperatures off of condenser coils. You have to do all of these things in order to kind of bring it all together. And if you don't do that stuff, while you're young, um, well, once you kind of become that journeyman, you get that journeyman status and you're out 
on your own and now you're trying to figure this out now um you're going to you're going to have a hard time you're going to struggle because i found once i became a journeyman that that hey you're a journeyman you're 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 the man now you got to go do all these calls that come in no choice and i also found that um i did learn a lot when it became a journeyman because i was thrown into situations i had never been in before but because back in the day i took the time to study diagrams like i said till my mind hurt and stick my meter places where maybe it shouldn't have gone like you know what i mean sometimes you got to do that stuff to to kind of get that base knowledge so when i get a call well, let's say and and i wanted to to throw this in there too because i think this is only fair to um, the customer where you are. Let's say, um, and I do commercial, so I gotta, I'm gonna kind of uh, give you an idea of of what a call would like. If a call came in for me, what it would be like. So let's say I'm doing a maintenance, and let's say I got three boxes of filters, and filters are scattered around everywhere. I got belts here and there, and I'm just kind of organizing through. And then I get a call. There's an emergency. Well, okay, now I gotta clean up all of this stuff. All right, and I gotta deal with it. Now, I think, in my opinion, it's only fair to bill the customer that you're going to while you're cleaning up. It's not the customer's fault where you're at that now you have to clean all this stuff up and leave their site because you're going to have to come back and set it all back up. That's not fair on that customer, in my opinion. So for me, if an emergency call comes in and I'm out of site and I got stuff everywhere, that cleanup period... I'm billing the customer I'm going to. I only think that's the fair way to do it. I think that's 100% fair. If you disagree, I mean you disagree, but that's that's how I roll, and, and that's the, uh, the sort of approach I take. But when the call comes in, okay, I don't really get stressed about it. Um, drive to the call. If I had been to the site before, I kind of get my, my mind going and think about the site, where things are, if it's a boiler room, if there's boilers in a mechanical room, if there's pumps, um, if there's radiators around the building, try to familiarize myself where everything is. Okay, that's, that's really important because you don't want to get there and, and start um, trying to remember where different things are. Sometimes you might have to get there in order for that to come back and hit you. But I try to do that as I'm driving there, try to get get a, a blueprint of the site in my head, where everything is, how everything functions, uh, the order of operations of, of that particular site. So uh, when you first get to the site, and, and, and yeah, let me, let me go back for a minute. Don't make up a diagnosis in your head. Don't say, yeah, it's the gas valve. Because when you get to that site, you're going to do everything in your power to prove it's the gas valve. And that's not a good idea. Go and start fresh and do a once-over on everything. Okay? So when you first get to the site, you want to have a discussion with the customer. What's been happening? When did it start? Are you, are you noticing any uh, weird trends? Right? Have these conversations. If they have a building management system, um, open it up with their help if needed, and go through some of the trend logs that's that's been happening. Like, 
when did this start? Oh, it, it started yesterday um, around 3 o'clock. Okay, so let's go to the full week before it happened. And let's look at the trend of the discharge air temp, for instance. Just an example. Oh, yeah, discharge air temp was steady for a week. And then right at 2.30, it did this weird dip. And then it kind of dipped and stayed there. So what happened at 2.30? All right, so we kind of get an idea of, of where something went wrong. The time might be a coincidence or it might have nothing to do with it at all. Okay, you just got to remember that. So have, have that conversation with the customer and look to see if they have a BAS building automation system and see if there's any trend logs you can pull up. All right, so once you've done that, you need to go to the machine, piece of machinery, the unit that's down, and you kind of need to step back and assess it. Okay, what is it? Okay, five-ton rooftop. Cool, I've worked on tons of these. Okay, it's got a blown fuse. Okay, why does it have a blown fuse? Let's open up the panels and let's have a look inside. Visual, visual inspection. Okay, and the other thing too about um, units that have blown fuses or power issues, guys, it might be a good idea to get out your non-contact -vo non voltage stick and just kind of wave it around that cabinet because cabinets can become live if the grounding is not correct. There's a short in that unit, right? The fuse is not going to blow if there's not a proper ground and you're just going to liven up that cabinet. So pull out your non-contact voltage stick, wave it around that unit, especially around that disconnect switch. And then if you're safe, go from there, right? But once you open it up, let's say, let's say it is a blown fuse. Just kind of visually inspect everything because a lot of times um, if you have a blown fuse or breaker, a visual inspection will find it like a terminal that popped loose and is now touching ground. Um, I've talked about carbon tracking in the past and how if you look at the line side of a contactor that has carbon tracking, you can actually see that the terminals on the top sometimes they start they, they they melt a little bit not a lot you can see that they, they the heat from that um from that ground from that short to ground has actually caused the top terminals to melt so have a visual inspection if you can't see anything visual everything works looks looks good you're going to pull out your meter okay and you're going to check um, resistance of your loads And the way I like to do it is go right to the ter terminal block of the unit. And I like to put, and I work on three-phase stuff most of the time. So put my meter on um, the first leg of power to ground, second leg, third leg. If I get no um, shorts to ground, I know I'm, I'm usually good from the line side, from, from that terminal block to the line side. And then I'm going to start to check loads afterwards. All right. Um, and if you can't find anything with your meter that's apparent, then you need to pull out your megger. And I know a lot of guys don't have meggers. And if you want to get an inexpensive megger that's very, very effective in troubleshooting, um, I have the Supco M500, and it works great for finding um, some issues that your, your regular meter 
may not find. So once, once you find the problem, I mean, you go down, you replace the fuse, reset the breaker, all right, with the power off at the main unit, like the local disconnect at the unit. Make sure you have that power off because sometimes you can have a short in between the breaker or the fuse and the local disconnect, right? So if you turn that local disconnect off and you turn the breaker panel on and it pops again, then you know you have a short between the breaker or fuse and the local disconnect. And now it's time for the electrician to come out and deal with it. All right, but if you reset it, replace the fuse, it doesn't pop. Okay, you go up to the unit and now you start going through testing. And, and, and what I do here is that I'll pull off the control wiring, all right, because I don't want things just starting up on their own. I want to go and start every individual load up by itself. That way I can isolate if there is something underlying or hidden. So, I mean, you can either jump it out or you can hook each one up individually. I usually just leave them off and jump it out. Jump out usually R to G first. Make sure the fan's running because that's really the most important thing. Um, in the unit, because if the fan's not running, you can't run heating, you can't run cooling, you can't run anything. So check the fan. Um, then whatever season it's in, I'll check that next. It's cooling, heating. Um, and if I can, um, I mean, if it's, it's if it 110 degrees outside, I'm not going to run the heat for too long. I'll just fire it for a couple of seconds, just to make sure it, it's running. Um, and do a full test on the cooling. Check amp draws of everything. Uh, make sure all the wire connections are tight. Okay, so that, that, that is one way to tackle um, a blown fuse. But you got to keep it in, in, in your mind that when you approach the unit, don't have a diagnosis in your head already. Like I said, oh, it's the gas valve. Because if that's in your head, you'll, you'll go down this rabbit hole and you'll try to prove it's the gas valve to yourself. And, and you could be wasting your time. So you got to start from the beginning. And the way I start from the beginning on most service calls is I check primary power first. Go up, you check primary power, and that's the way you'll know if a fuse is blown. Um, if primary power is good, that's correct. Then you go on to control power. Do I have control power? Do I have the proper control power? If it's cooling season, yes, I got control power. Okay, so I got a call for cooling at the thermostat. So let's make sure I'm getting that call. Let's make sure I'm getting 24 volts on Y1. If I'm not, well, I got to go down to that stat and check it out. And the best way to prove that the stat is a problem, you just pull it off the wall and you jump out at the sub base, R to Y1. You jump that out and your cooling starts up, you've proven most likely you have a thermostat issue. Okay, but if you go up to the unit and you got 24 volts there at Y1 and your compressor's still not on, now you're going to have to pull out that diagram and look through your line of safeties. What safeties are there? Okay, and then you're going to have to find them and go to each one and make sure that they're closed. If they're not, then you have to rectify the issue. If it's a high-pressure switch that's 
uh, a manual reset, reset it. If it's a low pressure switch that's open, maybe you're low on refrigerant. So now you have to hook up your gauge and see if there's refrigerant in the system or not, or if it's low. And then rectify the problem. Perhaps you have a leak. Perhaps you have a solenoid valve that didn't open. Um, who knows, right? So you need to go down that that rabbit hole and, and look for that issue, why you have low pressure on the low side. There's all kinds of different ways to tackle things, but starting from the beginning by checking primary power, then checking control power, and then moving through the diagram from start to finish is, is the way you got to do it. Now, when you get good, when you get really, really good, you can actually work backwards a lot of the times. So what I mean by that is, yeah, it's cooling season. The compressor's not on. Check power at the compressor. It's not there. Okay, I'm going to work backwards now. Um, a lot of guys do that, and a lot of guys find that um, easier to work backwards, right? Because then, then you find that flaw moving back. Um, but if you're just starting out troubleshooting, I recommend that you start from the beginning. Because if you start from the beginning, you won't miss anything. So we got some takeaways from that podcast and I'm kind of the guinea pig that went through it all. So you either don't have to, or you can relate to what I was mentioning during um, the segments there. One, don't take a test drunk or under the influence because you'll probably fail unless you're really good at guessing. Um, Try not to stress yourself out too much. Try not to overthink. Try not to second guess yourself. Use your gut where necessary because a lot of times your gut is going to give you the right answer. When dealing with service calls, don't get excited. Don't diagnose on the way there. Just kind of relax. Get a blueprint of, of the building or, or home or wherever you're going, where everything is. Kind of envision everything, the system as a whole. Okay, when you get there, start from the beginning. Primary power, control power, go down that line of safeties. Okay, if you got to hook up your gauges, you got to hook them up. If you got to check gas pressure on a manifold, do that. Okay, just go through the steps, start to finish. Okay, and I've always said it takes five minutes to be a better tech. So when you're done, all you got to do is double check your work. That last zip tie, that last screw, um, that last connection, is it all good? Because that's going to prevent so many callbacks, it's unbelievable. A lot of callbacks that I've gone to from other guys is because of stuff like that. Loose terminals, panels falling off, um, dangling wires that's not uh, zip-tied properly. Five minutes to be a better tech, guys. I'm out. Happy HVACing.